You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist. Welcome to my show. And uh, my special guest tonight is going to be Vladimir Putin's former senior economic advisor, Dr. Andrei Ilarionov, who is now a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We're going to be talking about what went wrong in the former Soviet Union, why the liberal reforms failed, why the reformers failed, and why the Siloviki, that is, the KGB operatives, took over the country. And so we'll be back with my special guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, the one kick they blew but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. And with me tonight is my special guest, Dr. Andrei Ilarionov. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. From 2000 to December 2005, he was the chief economic advisor of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Ilarionov also served as the president's personal representative in the G8, he is one of Russia's most forceful and articulate advocates of an open society and democratic capitalism and has been a longtime friend of the Cato Institute. Ilarionov received his Ph.D. from St. Petersburg University in 1987. From 1993 to 1994, Ilarionov served as chief economic advisor to the prime minister of the Russian Federation, Viktor Chernomyrdin. He resigned in February 1994 to protest changes in the government's economic policy in July 1994, Ilarionov founded the Institute of Economic Analysis and became its director. He has co-authored several economic programs for Russian governments and has written three books and more than 300 articles on Russian economic and social policies. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ilarionov. Thank you. I'm going to start out right away just to ask, because this is the burning question for Americans, is Vladimir Putin taking Russia back to the Soviet Union? The short answer is certainly no. Okay, so so exactly what is he about? What, what, why, what is motivating him and, and what is driving him to, to make the choices that he's making? Uh, my sense is that um, some comparisons that have been made uh, of uh, today's Russia with the former Soviet Union, as you have referred to, or some people even going far comparing today's Russia with Germany in the 30s. Nevertheless, the system is uh, is different in some very important elements. It is not the planned economic system. There is no planning system over there. There is no some state ownership on all assets. No, there is a market here. It's not perfect market. It's not free market. But there is some uh, some market there. There is a private property there. It is not very well protected private property. Uh, especially for those who are building very successful companies, let's say, in oil uh, or in gas and resources sector. But nevertheless, it's some private property uh, exists today uh, in Russia. 
So what model would be, uh, what political model, social model would be the best to compare modern Russia with? To my limited knowledge of some kind of available examples, I would say it's something that probably available on the Italian island uh, of Sicily uh, some time ago and probably still exists in some remote corners where the leading principle of economic and political um, engagement of the authorities with the rest of population is force, is manipulation, and the absence of free exchange. There is exchange, but it is not free. That's something that can be uh, some kind of borrowed from a wonderful novel of Mario Piozza. Uh, we have made an offer that is quite hard to refuse. The way uh, how the people uh, that are having the uh, full power in the country, grabbing assets of uh, private companies, of private owners, and forcing them to fulfill orders and some kind of bear cost uh, for what they would like to have. So once again, this is a, um, a rather sophisticated system. It is not uh, so some kind of black and white picture that it's not correctly to be compared with the uh, Soviet Union or the central and planned system uh, with socialism and communism. It would be better to maybe to call it neither communist or socialist. It would be called Sicilism, uh, referring to island of Sicily. Certainly, it's not the overall picture, and there are some other people who are arguing uh, in favor of different concepts. But I think this uh, very important element of the system is rather visible right now. So uh, let me try to see if I can picture this. You're describing a social and economic system in which there's not a very good law and order, in which uh, people who are perhaps armed gangs, perhaps the government, perhaps criminal groups, uh, can violate property rights pretty much at will, and so that uh, people who do build up property, who do own large businesses, cannot always be sure of their security of their property. I think you uh, picked up the probably the most important element in this new system, the absence of rule of law. And this is, I would agree completely with you, that the absence of rule of law is probably the most important element of this new system. Uh, Traditionally, uh, political scientists uh, here in the West and in many other countries would uh, put uh, in some kind of in contradiction rule of law versus rule of a man. Uh, but in the case of modern Russia, it would be probably not correct because, first of all, there is no rule of law, but also there is no rule of a man. There, I would say, in Russia, probably would be more accurate to use the expression rule of thugs. It is different. It's not a rule of one person. It's not a rule of just a group of people that are following some particular rules or some particular models of behavior. Uh, that's a, some kind of rules uh, that imposed on the population by uh, people that are usually put in some kind of in very remote places and maybe some kind of and special isolation. But usually, uh, uh, in actually in most civilized countries, those people are not occupying the highest position in the in the government. I found it very revealing some years back when there was a dispute over ownership of a factory in the Urals that the local um, police and militia turned out 
in favor of one owner, and the federal authorities turned out in favor of another owner, and there was sort of an armed standoff at that point. And um, I recall George Orwell in his book 1984, he described socialism as a lawless order. And sort of in the wake of the Soviet Union, what you have is that similar situation. You have that lawless order, but you have reintroduced the market. And so you have, it's almost like it's feudalism. Um, I think once again, uh, it's a very interesting example that you uh, mentioned. Um, it is true, um, uh, but it's probably not only one such case. It's actually hundreds and thousands, maybe mm-hmm. tens of thousands of similar cases yes. in the whole country. It's not only in Europe, but uh, all over. And what you have described is exactly, it's not one some kind of gang that is uh, ruling uh, all over the country, but uh, also the number of competing gangs, certainly with one of the most important gangs that is uh, grabbing and controlling the efforts of the most of the great importance, but some other uh, gangs at different levels. Mm-hmm. So what is important here, and it is once again probably it's correct to uh, recall uh, George Orwell uh, uh, socialism as some kind of uh, lawless uh, order. It is true, but this situation that we are having right now is probably would be called lawless disorder or lawlessness. Uh, socialism was uh, not a great system. It was a dictatorship. It was a very clear dictation. Sometimes it was incredibly nasty and very uh, uh, of uh, terrorist-type uh, uh, system. Nevertheless, uh, that time, and I still remember how it was, at least in the last 20 to 30 years of the existence of the former Soviet Union, it was a very clear rules, and a majority of population did know those rules. And even if they were not extremely happy to follow those rules, they knew those rules. And as long as they followed those rules, they were in a very high level of safety. Today's situation is quite different from that because uh, you don't know the rules. Because rules do not exist. Because what is right and correct today can be absolutely wrong tomorrow. You can uh, have very serious problems, regardless whether you are in opposition to this political regime or not. For example, Mr. Khodorkovsky can probably blame, certainly he does not look like that he blames himself for what he has done, but nevertheless, some people could say that he could blame himself because he was courageous enough to some kind of to try to build a political opposition to this regime, and that is why he paid a very heavy price uh, in terms of his personal freedom and complete destruction of his company. But let's look at uh, the fate of Mikhail Gutsiriev, a very successful business person in Russia uh, who was able to build very successful uh, fast-rising oil company Rusneft uh, that was the fastest-growing Russian oil company of mid-size uh, over the last five years and uh, probably one of the fastest-growing com- uh, companies um, uh, in the world in this particular sector. So he uh, knew the rules of the game very well, and he participated in all these uh, operations and uh, companies of the uh, ruling regime. Nevertheless, his main crime was that he had this uh, very successful company with a market capitalization more than three billion U.S. dollars. And what that crime that was not tolerated, and because some people in uh, the ruling elite uh, decided, okay, it would be good to have this company for himself or for some other people. 
and uh, some kind of short uh, legal battle and battle with security personnel uh, ended with Mr. Gutsirif and his colleagues and relatives uh, leaving Russia uh, for some kind of voluntary exile uh, to London, and his company has been con- confiscated. So even his uh, friendship uh, uh, with uh, people in uh, in the power, even his loyalty to this regime did not help him, did not prevent uh, his company from confiscation. So it's a demonstration that there is no rule even for those who are rather close um, to this regime and who are actually following uh, seemingly uh, some kind of rules or some kind of desires of these people at power. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, I almost am, am thinking of, of medieval Great Britain under under the the uh, Plantagenets, in which you had all these lesser princes, and the big uh, uh, prince, the monarch, uh, sort of he went after the big issues, the big fish, and the the smaller ones would go after the little ones. And here, would it be possible to describe the regime in Russia as similar to this? Where, where Putin is like the king of this large, complex series of relationships between different gangs. He's sort of the top gang, the one that they all have to get along with, and that as long as they all get along down below and they, they all kind of follow a general scheme where he's on top, he's okay with them. But the minute that uh, that there's something big like an oil company to loot, or a, a, a maybe a, a major business that's getting in the way of state policy, he immediately goes after that. Um, I remember, I can recall uh, uh, in year 2003 when uh, this first major attack on Yukos has been started by Siloviki, by those people from enforcement bodies in Russia and was trying, were trying to destroy this company and, and grab these assets, very many people, both Russian business people and uh, foreign business people, were asking me, as well as many other people, how they should read this attack, whether it is some kind of unique one case mm-hmm. or it should be now the rule. And after that, it happened with similar story happened with Sibnieft, another oil company, with some other uh, uh, companies in some other resource-based sectors. And that time, people uh, some kind of gradually moved. First of all, they thought, okay, probably it's one case uh, uh, like Yukos because of the problems with personality of Mr. Kodarkovsky. After they they started to think, okay, it's probably a limited to a resource extracted sector. Mm-hmm. But after that, it moved to the machine building sector, to transportation company, to aviation, uh, to banking sector, and further on and on and on. And so now it looks like there is no sector, there is no region is isolated from these attacks. So the question would be, what is criteria? Uh, what is the rule that could we find out to understand the logic behind those attacks? I'd like to offer... Uh, such a criteria. This criteria is successful companies, companies that can generate cash, companies that can generate cash flow, uh, substantial enough, significant enough for uh, efforts to take these companies uh, for themselves. So that is why it doesn't matter in which particular sector you have your own business. It doesn't matter in which particular region you have this business. It doesn't matter what kind of particular relations, personal or political relations you developed with these particular people. 
What is important, whether your company is successful, is able to generate cash flow. If it is so, this is a very clear indicator that this company could be the target for attack. Hmm. If we move to your question about uh, uh, whether it would be possible to compare this political regime with what uh, uh, we know from the history of the United Kingdom or some other countries in medieval Europe, um, I would recall uh, the observation of uh, one of the greatest political scientists uh, of our days, uh, Mankor Olson, who tried to describe the evolution of the state over centuries as a movement from so-called nomadic uh, banditry to stationary bandit and to the modern state, civilized state. Mm -hmm. uh, having uh, the some kind of development of law, uh, development of rule of law, development of order as the main criteria of movement from barbarism to civilization. And I would generally tend to agree with this observation. What we are having right now um, in my country is that probably the reversal uh, movement, movement from um, uh, some kind of civilized state, though quite imperfect as it was in, let's say, 1990s, uh, towards uh, some kind of stationary bandit and probably to groups of nomadic bandits in the country with the destruction of basic element that uh, actually is a criteria for civilized society is a law, the rule of law. And that's fascinating. If they're moving back to stationary banditry, and of course this kind of uh, taking over of companies, I mean, Russia's headed for worse economic troubles in the future, isn't it? You know, that's a very interesting topic, and just, I'm very glad that you have touched it, because uh, what we also know from the historical experiences of many nations of a long period of time, uh, that usually economic development, economic growth, rise in living standards, are associating with the improvement in institution, uh, institutional quality, with development of institutions, institutions of society, institutions of the state, including, and first of all, such, uh, such institutions like rule of law, independent judiciary, independent mass media, electoral process, uh, civil society, um, civil uh, liberties, political rights, and so on and so on. Uh, so that is why uh, it allowed uh, American political scientists and more lips at 50 years ago to proclaim that is a law. The countries that are going to be richer usually do have uh, more political freedom and usually do have more uh, civil liberties and certainly have higher rule of law. Later on, uh, Professor Francis Fukuyama has written his uh, very well-known uh, article in a then book, and of history, and it became now almost classic everywhere. Mm -hmm. That is some kind of the general trend uh, in uh, human evolution towards freedom, towards law, towards prosperity. And in the most cases uh, around the world, we really do observe these trends. So the countries that are richer usually are freer countries. Countries that are less freer actually usually much poorer. So uh, we would expect uh, similar patterns to be observed in many places in the world. And actually we do it. 
For example, Estonia, that was 20 years ago, was relatively poor and relatively not developed, moved both uh, in all those directions, in the direction of institutional development and in terms of economic growth and rising living standards. Zimbabwe is moving in opposite direction. Uh, the government of Robert Mugabe is destroying institutions of civilized society and state, and actually the country is uh, plunged in the deepest uh, economic recession. So, it looks like um, not only for the world average, but for some particular countries, we do see exactly the same pattern. But when we move to Russia, and just really very few other countries and few historical episodes, we cannot see it. Because on one hand, we certainly see uh, enormous, unthinkable, unimaginable destruction of institutions of civilized society and civilized state, but at the same time, we do see quite impressive economic growth. Economic growth that uh, now lasts for 10 years. Uh, economic growth that is uh, among the fastest growing economies of today's world. So that is why it looks, at, first of all, that this law or this regularity or these patterns that have been observed and formulated by uh, tens and hundreds of economists and political scientists looks like do not work in Russia. And that is why we can ask whether that is some really some kind of is a new law or any new pattern, new type of evolution is being observed right now in the case of Russia, which is quite different from what we know for other countries. It could be one possible option for interpretation of these events, or second would be uh, that this rule, this pattern, this evolution is still the same, but probably we need to have much longer time to see when this destruction of, of institutions would eventually lead to economic crisis and to economic problems in this particular country. Uh, with me is Andrei Alerinov, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and uh, we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. At 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 10.20, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 10.20, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. And we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and I've got with me my special guest, Andrei Ilarionov. He is a former economic advisor of President Vladimir Putin of Russia, and we've been discussing the, the future of Russia. And uh, it's, it's quite fascinating, Dr. Alarinov, to hear you talk about the, the unusual, unique situation that Russia has entered into, seeming to go back in terms of social order, um, uh, struggling as it is to sort of find its way. I, I have to ask, because... Um, Obviously, from the United States perspective, we saw the administration of Boris Yeltsin and we saw how Yeltsin picked, handpicked Vladimir Putin to be a successor. We know that Putin is associated with the KGB structures and that he came in, brought a lot of those people in there. What, what happened? What's, what is, is Vladimir Putin personally 
somehow responsible for what happened, or is it just the nature of the institution, the nature of the country that it it moved in this direction, and that there was nothing any individual could do to have stopped it? Are you asking about the responsibility of Boris Yeltsin or Boris, of Vladimir Putin or whom? Yeah, both of them. Yes. I would not like to some kind of to downplay the role of uh, people, especially those people who do have a lot of political power. Nevertheless, if we look more closely to the whole process, uh, so it would be not so easy to blame uh, one particular person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if we look into the uh, history of the 90s, for uh first seven to eight years of his uh, time as a president, Boris Yeltsin was looking for his successor among Russian uh, ec- uh, young economists, so-called liberal economists. And we can detect very clearly that he was moving from one person to the other, looking at that particular person as his possible successor. One of the, his first uh, choices was Grigory Yevlinsky. After that, he moved his attention to Yegor Gaidar. After that, to Anatoly Chubais. After that, to Boris Nemtsov. After that, to Sergei Kirienko. And he was giving, Boris Yeltsin, he was given the opportunity to, to each of those people with uh, professional training, uh, rather far from security uh, background, secret police uh, background. And he was giving them positions to show to the country and to the world that they are able to deal with the problems the country faced that time. So Mr. Yulinsky was a deputy prime minister. Mr. Gaidar was actually acting prime minister. Mr. Chubais was the deputy prime minister. Very important positions during this time. Mr. Boris Nimtsov was a deputy prime minister, first deputy prime minister. Mr. Kirienko was a uh, prime minister of the country. So mm-hmm. it was the highest uh, position in executive power after the president himself. So he was giving this opportunity to these young and energetic and dynamic people to demonstrate that they are able to solve the country's problem. But then the crash of 98 happened, and he, he appointed Primakov, Stepashin, and Putin in order being prime ministers. That is a problem, because for all these seven to eight years, each person whom he has given this power to deal with Russian problems uh, actually failed. It became absolutely clear for the country Unfortunately, we cannot work with them. And only after 98 crash, uh, Mr. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, when the actually time was running, because he had less than two years before his departure from the position of the president, he was uh, forced to turn back on economists, on the liberals and democrats, and he was looking for somebody uh, with some kind of military background or security background, who would be able to continue more or less uh, movement of the country into the right direction towards civilization uh, from communism, uh, but who would not uh, put country into the crisis and to the crash. And after that, he found uh, Mr. Putin. And frankly speaking, among all those candidates, Mr. Putin is the most capable, is most knowledgeable, is most dynamic, a uh, person who had highest and some kind of widest vision for the country and for the world and so on. So that is why uh, it will look, it will try to be in the shoes of Mr. Uh, Yeltsin. Just let's imagine. So I would wonder who would behave in different ways uh, compared to the way how Mr. Uh, Yeltsin behaved in reality. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In his in his diaries, he he said when he finally picked Putin, he found his general, and he used the the a military term for a military commander that he 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 was looking for something like that, somebody with real backbone, a fighter, someone who had discipline. Um, and and with Putin, you you almost get a Napoleonic feeling watching him. He's very he's very military. He has a military bearing about him, and um, and he has a sort of strength that he projects. Is is this? Do you think, in some objective way, what Russia needed? From my point of view, it's not uh, uh, what is what is important. Not what I think about that, or what some other people do think about that, but what actually what the overall population would decide. And for that purpose, it is so important to have a free, fair, honest, and transparent election. And unfortunately, we have to admit, we do not have such elections. So we had some reasonable elections in the 90s. They were not extremely, some kind of perfect, it's not some kind of example of perfect democracy, uh, but it was reasonable. They were reasonable. But since 99, all, the, uh, all parliamentary, unpresidential elections are really heavily rigged. Uh, we had just recently two elections, or so-called elections, I would call better than special operations of our security services that have, uh, that have these names of elections. On December 2nd, year 2007, parliamentary, and on March 2nd, year 2008, uh, presidential, in which uh, there was no uh, free access to uh, election for uh, many political parties. They were denied registration, and some of them have been actually dissolved. Mm-hmm. There was no free access of uh, candidates for presidential elections. Uh, many of them have, denied the, have been denied this, uh, this right. And even after this massive campaign of harassment, of this propaganda, of brainwashing, uh, 24 hours a day, even after that, it was a massive uh, ballot stuffing and massive falsification of uh, uh, election protocols. According to these studies that have been uh, concluded recently, uh, the number of votes that have been stolen from the Russian electorate um, during both elections was between 15 and 20 millions. I'm not talking hmm. about those people who did not come to the election, not about those people who were not able to vote for their favorite party or favorite candidate who were denied registration in the Central Election Commission. Hmm. I'm talking about even those people who did believe this propaganda, who did come to this polling station and voted how they wanted. But even in those cases, between 15 and 20 million votes have been stolen and were given uh, uh, accordingly to the United Russia Party in December and to Mr. Medvedev in March. Hmm. Once again, between 15 to 20 million votes have been stolen, and there was no big scandal, uh, certainly in, not in Russia, because it's not free country right now. It's impossible to have any serious scandal. It's impossible to discuss this issue in uh, mass media, but not even in the West. Moreover, on uh, December 3rd, year 2007, next morning after this heavily rigged election, Mr. Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, the president of the French Republic, called Mr. Putin and congratulated him with a fair, honest, and transparent uh, victory in this uh, election. And after this March uh, election, 
our so-called elections, so-called special operations. A um, few days later, the Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, flew to Moscow to congratulate Mr. Medvedev uh, with his new position. Even once again, the results are, of the uh, election are very clear. With me is Andrei Alerianov, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning. Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want, but in partisan politics, there are rules. To Grossman Afternoons. Someone suspects they're an illegal immigrant. The cop is more afraid of arresting them than of letting them go. Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. That's how you're battling it. I like that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I think that's more than reasonable. I certainly, you know, we're talking about 12 million dollars here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. All right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my special guest, Andrei Ilarionov. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a former senior economic advisor to Vladimir Putin. We've been discussing here the uh, situation of Russia, particularly now the elections that have taken place. And, and of course, I've, I've heard these reports, too, uh, Dr. Alarinov, about these rigged elections and about the manipulation of the political process in Russia. And it is disappointing that the Western governments have not tried to hold Russia to a higher standard. But, of course, the West is in a compromised position. We're in a difficult position because... We don't want to go back to the Cold War. We don't want to have a confrontation with Russia. We're not sure what to do with this regime. We we had the um, apparent assassination of Alexander Litvinenko a year ago last November with polonium, a radioactive element, a stunning event where the radiation was traced back to Moscow. And, and uh, the British government is pretty sure that this assassination was ordered by the Kremlin. Um, and so you, you, you have this feeling that th- this is a gangster regime and that uh, illegal things are being done, uh, murders are being committed. Or, you know, How should President Bush, how should the Western leaders react to Putin? I mean, what, what's the proper way to respond? Uh, first of all, um, just I'm not in the position of advisor to anyone, neither mm-hmm. to the Russian government or not to the U.S. administration, not to the British government, not to any government in the world. So it is just up to the um, Western countries, up to the Western uh, political system, political elites, and up to the uh, people in the um, Western countries to decide what would be the uh, best way and the right way. Second, it's rather hard to provide any advices even from other perspective because uh, Mr. George Bush uh, has said many, many times that he uh, sees uh, Vladimir Putin as his personal friend. And he was very persistent in uh, those statements from year 2001 when he saw him first time until very recently uh, meeting in this uh, resort uh, residence in Sochi on the Black Sea uh, coast. So he consistent in this way. So he considered Mr. Vladimir Putin as his uh, one of his closest and personal friends. 
looks like much closer friend than, uh, let's say, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, or Gordon Brown. Because in all these problems that the British government did have with the Silivki regime in Russia, whether it was a case of uh, polonium poisoning of Alexandra Litvinenko, or in the case of closure of the uh, departments and the branches of the British Council in St. Petersburg and, and Yekaterinburg, mm-hmm. or in the case of hunting of the British uh, ambassador and his family by Nazi stormtroopers in Moscow for more than a year. In all those cases and many other cases, British government has been left alone in dealing with uh, uh, this regime of Siloviki. The U.S. administration has never supported even some kind of uh, morally or some kind of uh, verbally uh, the British government each time when these uh, British did have any problems. So U.S. administration's uh, representatives were saying how good relations they have with uh, Russian uh, authorities. And they continue to do this. So that is why we do see a very unique, very unusual situation uh, for many, many years and probably many decades. Uh, we, we've been taught, uh, told that uh, U.S. and the U.K. are uh, two countries that are working closely, extremely closely, much more closely than any other countries in the world. And sometimes we do see uh, examples of that. It's a so-called Anglo-Saxon, uh, whatever, friendship, fraternity, or some kind of access, whatever, uh, in many endeavors for the last couple of centuries, but not in this particular case. It looks like uh, in this particular relations, U.S. administration uh, ha- is having much closer relations with the Russian uh, colleagues rather than with the British uh, partners. And I recall that a few weeks ago, uh, I heard the head of the um, Russia desk at the State Department who was publicly saying in front of hundreds of people that they, in the State Department, uh, do think that they have much more common with the Russian people in Kremlin than with anybody else. I do recall the statement of the person who was in charge of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, looking some kind of monitoring the work of uh, U.S. Uh, security services, uh, who was saying last October... Uh, in the big uh, conference, that the level of cooperation between U.S. and Russian security service is the highest uh, in the history. And by the, uh, by any chance, in the audience that time was the widow of Alexandra Litvinenko Marina. And you can imagine uh, what she should feel that time when she heard uh, these words. Um, we also remember that uh, a couple of months ago, Wall Street Journal in Europe has published an article of the former head of Russia Desk and the National Security Council in the U.S. administration, uh, the article devoted to Russian, to Mr. Putin, under the very clear title, Modernizing Tsar. I can continue these examples. Uh, what is important that we do see extraordinary and very special relations of the current U.S. administrations toward the Russian uh, political regime of Siloviki in Russia, this KGB, former KGB and secret uh, police operative that are uh, in Moscow and Kremlin right now. And frankly speaking, I don't have a good explanation why it is so. Is it possible that because the KGB was such an effective uh, international gatherer of information that it has effective blackmail on different leaders abroad? 
I would not like to speculate on this business. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's not uh, something that I'm aware of. Uh, but if you look into the Russian recent history in the Russia in Russia and in Ukraine over the last ten years, uh, very many presidential candidates and hopefuls uh, were either uh, murdered or died under very suspicious circumstances. Just let's let's think about. Galina Starovoitova, one of the presidential candidates, has been murdered in November 1998 uh, uh, in her house. Sergei Yushchenko, the head of the uh, Liberal Russia Party, has been shot down in front of his house. Alexander Lebedev died in a very suspicious helicopter crash in the uh, two, I believe. Mm-hmm. In 1999, uh, the head of uh, uh, People's Ruch, opposition movement in Ukraine, uh, Vyacheslav Chernobyl died in very suspicious uh, car crash uh, near Kiev. And uh, later it became known that it was a special operations by the uh, groups of uh, secret operators sent from Moscow for that. Mm-hmm. Mr. Yushchenko, another presidential hopeful, uh, was heavily poisoned in September 2004. Uh, fortunately for him, he was able to survive, uh, but just this story is known to everybody. If we look into the presidents of Chechen Republic, uh, so all of them have been murdered, mm. including Mr. Dudaev, uh, Mr. Maschadov, Mr. Yindarbiev, and Mr. Yindarbiev has been um, uh, murdered. So that is why we have the overwhelming evidence of behavior that is not considered to be accepted in the civilized world. And anyone who would behave remotely similar would be immediately isolated. But we don't see such approach and such policy towards those people who are committing similar crimes. It's not only the case of Alexander Litvinenko, but many other uh, other similar cases. Yes. So that is why we would ask ourselves uh, just what is the reason for that. And some people could say, okay, the girl's best friends are diamonds, and the Silviki best friends are Western politicians. And why it is so? Well, what you're describing is not just an ordinary criminal gang, but a very sophisticated organization that has a history and a tradition of using many methods that are unique to its own institution, its own history, and that this institution, rather than having a, a Tsar or a Communist Party over it, is really in charge of the country from the top. Uh, I am not a, a specialist in that type of uh, studies, and just it's probably better to consult with some other people who are much more knowledgeable. But in any case, looking on successes, uh, achievements, of this regime over the last eight years or so, uh, so that we can claim whether economic growth was some kind of this achievement. To some extent, yes, it is true. Uh, institutional destruction, yes, uh, it's some kind of quite extraordinary. The, the speed of destruction of institutions of civilized society in Russia was faster than any other country in the world for the last eight years. But putting aside all these achievements, we could move probably to the success or achievements in the recruiting, recruiting friends, recruiting friends among political elites of the West, recruiting friends in the Western business elite, recruiting friends in the Western intellectual elites. And we can see 
those people publishing their articles and opinions and views quite uh, strongly supporting what is going on right now in Russia, mentioning these, let's say, articles about modernizing uh, Russia and many others. So we're talking about a regime that has good skills at influencing and winning friends abroad. And this is a very clear distinction between the, let's say, former Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. that by any uh, measurement was not a very good friend, neither on the national level or the government level or on a personal level uh, with any Western leader, and even democratic leaders uh, in very many countries. So that's really something really very special. Mm -hmm. So that is why we have to look at this. And one particular element I'd like to also mention, um, we were talking a little bit earlier about this uh, very unusual situation with destruction of institutions and continuing economic growth. So instead of moving in one direction, either upward or downward, we can see those trends going in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. So what kind of countries or what historical examples uh, would be similar to today's Russia? Hmm. Uh, at least two other examples would come to my mind, to my memory. Mm-hmm. One would be Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1914, and the Stalin uh, USSR at the same time in the 30s. And then we compare these uh, historical examples and today's to Russia, not looking in the political system because they are uh, slightly different, mm-hmm. but looking at economic uh outcomes for those three examples. Um, Economic growth in all three cases was quite extraordinary. It was 60% increase in GDP per capita in Nazi Germany. It was 66% increase in Stalin's USSR. And it is 77% increase in GDP per capita in today's Russia. At the same time, in uh, growth in GDP per capita for the rest of the world, was modest. So this dichotomy between clearly economic success and improvement in living standards of millions of people in Nazi Germany, in Stalin's USSR, in today's Russia, versus much more modest and much slower progress in the rest of the world, creates a very special psychological feeling for political elites and for millions of people in those countries. All those people started to believe that they found something really unique to grow faster than countries with liberal democratic political system. And that is why they developed so-called superiority complex, that all those institutions of liberal democracy, of representation, of uh, rule of law, of civil liberties, of political rights are not so important for getting richer. Mm-hmm. And that is why this psychological feeling, not only shared by some propaganda people from the authorities, but shared by millions and tens of millions of people, actually is a very important and powerful weapon. And they're thinking, why should we follow this example and this model of liberal democracy if they, in liberal democratic countries, cannot produce similar results as we have right now here? Mm-hmm. And that is a very serious psychological and ideological challenge for the overall system of Western values. What is more important, free exchange of legally equal persons or 
violence, rule of law, or banditry. And that is probably the most serious challenge that today's Russia poses for the West. And I notice your two examples, Nazi Germany and USSR in the 30s, both those countries ended up in major military conflicts. They ended up uh, uh, as partners at first, uh, you know, invading other countries, and then they ended up at war with each other. Is with the new militarization and some of the military posturing of Russia, is Russia psychologically headed towards conflict with some of its neighbors? Uh, you asking me the question that really I would prefer not to comment on because I actually don't even uh, like to think about that. Mm -hmm. We certainly know the uh, history and what has happened in the middle of 20th century uh, with participation of Nazi Germany, with participation of Stalin's uh, USSR, mm -hmm. with attacks on neighboring countries, and with some kind of the great losses of tens of millions of people, and with the huge bloodshed and destruction of continents. So I very much hope and very much pray that uh, whatever is going on in Russia it will not uh, lead to that particular stage because it would be really catastrophic for uh, millions and tens of millions of people. Nevertheless, uh, some actions of some kind of violence and aggression have been observed in the case of Russian authorities towards Ukraine, towards Georgia, and Georgia uh, for almost two years was in a full blockade, economic, trade, transportation of any kind blockade from Russia. Uh, towards Estonia last May, mm -hmm. and so on. And this type of behavior uh, cannot continue. You've mentioned this case of uh, nuclear uh, polonium poisoning in the center of uh, London, mm -hmm. which is actually the first case probably of nuclear terrorism, nuclear international terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, we also can look into the uh, last May when the Estonian government bodies had been attacked from different parts of the world, but what is the real source of those attacks? Mm -hmm. That is why probably we could not look only on some kind of aggression with old means, with tanks, with infantry, but with new means hmm. offered by this age of technology. With me is Andrei Alerinov, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's a former advisor of President Vladimir Putin. Uh, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Some radio stations are just noise and chatter. WIBG 1020 AM is radio with a passion and purpose. From early in the morning to Grossman Afternoons, Chuck Fetson Sports Saturdays, and Dan Klein South Jersey Insider. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. This is the Jeff Nyquist program, and with me is Dr. Andrei Alerianov, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a former senior economic advisor of President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And uh, we're getting to the end of the show, and I was wondering about your impression of the American economy. We've been going through some, I don't know if you've been following it, uh, financial problems, if you've got any thoughts as to what's going on there as an economist. Certainly, there are many more knowledgeable people who are following the developments in uh, American economy than myself. 
what I can say that it looks like it's um, almost unavoidable to have some kind of a downturn, some kind of slowing down of economic growth in this country from time to time. So that is why uh, it's probably unavoidable. Uh, but uh, what is important, not only to look what is uh, being done by the American business, but also what is being done by American government. And frankly speaking, some measures that have been undertaken in recent uh, months and recent years, it's really quite hard for me to understand uh, this uh, incredible increase in government expenditures with the rise of budget deficit that led U.S. dollar to fall, undermining position of uh, American economy domestically and internationally. It's really quite hard to understand uh, the rationale behind uh, such type of behavior. Uh, another related question, uh, of course, we've had very high oil prices. Oil went over $100 a barrel, and of course, Russian economy has profited from that. But are these oil prices sustainable? I mean, are we going to continue to have high oil prices, or is oil going to fall, and is the Russian economy going to be hurt by that? You know, something that I've been uh, told by my professor many years back, uh, three things you shouldn't do in your life. One of them is never predict oil prices. Mm-hmm. So just I'm trying to follow his advice. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, okay, very knowledgeable people are spending their life uh, trying to predict uh, those prices. And frankly speaking, they are not very good on that. Mm-hmm. Even the best possible oil specialists, for example, uh, let's see, Dan Jorgen, one of the really best specialists um, in oil, was predicting for the last, I believe, maybe four years that uh, oil prices would go down but they're going up. Mm-hmm. It means that even for really very knowledgeable and very well-trained and very experienced people, it's not so easy. But uh, even those who are not very knowledgeable in that area could say something that I'd like to say right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless uh, what would be the trend for oil prices, I would strongly uh, state that without attack of U.S. on Iraq, in year 2003, and without what we are having right now in Iraq for the last five years, I think that oil prices would be lower today. Wow. So that is why, regardless uh, of some other factors, one of the very clear outcomes of this intervention in Iraq, not only um, death of thousands of American soldiers, not only death of tens of thousands of Iraqis who died during this conflict, but also much higher oil prices. And for that much higher oil prices, very many millions of people in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, are paying very heavy price. Yes, we are. If it continues, do you think that there will be serious consequences for the U.S. economy? Um, probably the uh, current state of recession or the going to be recession or expected recession in the United States either would not happen at all, or if it happened, it probably will be not uh, so difficult uh, to survive. Mm. So these uh, higher oil prices are taking their toll for American uh, economy already, and certainly from the budgets of Americans. Mm. So it is undeniable. Well, now we're at the end of the program, Dr. Larinoff, and I'd like to ask you, do you have any special remarks for our listeners uh, as you conclude? Just, I'd like to thank uh, people for the patience and for the interest in 
what is going on in my own country, in Russia, and in the interest in trying to understand what uh, is the logic and what is the evolution of particular regimes um, in today's world. And I would urge everybody to think about absolutely new uh, challenges that are posed by appearance of this new political regime in Russia on one hand, and the very unexpected response from the Western governments, from Western political elites, and from Western political leaders, which is still quite a mystery for me. Hmm. And I would encourage everybody to contribute their efforts and resources to understand this mystery. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alaranov, for being our guest, and I, I wish you good luck in the future. Thank you very much for invitation, and good luck to our listeners. Thank you. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Yeah, hi, this is Damon Wilson, formerly Lamont of Sanford and Son. And when I'm in Atlantic City, I always turn on WIBG 1020 Life Radio. WIBG 1020, Ocean City, Summers Point, Atlantic City. South Jersey's first choice for Christian news talk. We're plugging you into life. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Well, you've heard my guest, Dr. Andrei Ilarionov, and I, I, I go through my head, is Russia ever going to grasp the principles of liberty? Is Russia going to find its path to freedom? It's, it's evolving away from the rule of law. The former KGB has taken over the control of the government, and the, and the West is not reacting to it. Great Britain is, as our guest has pointed out, but not the United States, not necessarily France or Germany. So uh, we have a problem. And uh, the mystery that our guest talked about, the mystery of the West's reaction or non-reaction to Putin. And uh, that is something that I definitely want to understand. And one of the things this program is about. So with this thought, I hope uh, you'll tune in next week for the Jeff Nyquist program. Until then, be well. You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.